turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis as we continue in our series, Joseph. And, and one of the things I want to focus in on uh, this week is the idea of really seeing the good in God's detours. Okay, We've been seeing uh, the good in the detours uh, that Joseph has had. We've seen major detours in Joseph's life. He is given the task of going to check in on his brothers in the early part of the story. And everything changes. He was supposed to check in on them, make sure all was going well with them, and then go back to home and tell dad, hey, listen, your flocks are good, your boys are good, everything's going fine. But that's not what happens. A detour takes place. Instead of going and checking on his brothers and and heading back home, uh, we learn that he's heading towards Egypt. What it transpired was is the brothers' hatred for Joseph. And we remember the reasons why, right? Joseph's dad loved Joseph more than he loved any of his other sons. He had bought him a gift of a coat of many colors. That was a visual uh, sign of his favoritism over all the other children. And then Joseph had experienced some dreams at around 17 years of age that he had announced to the rest of the family, which made the blood of the brothers boil in hatred towards Joseph. And when Joseph is still a little distance off, his brothers conspire to kill him. And through a course of events and, and talking it over, instead of killing him, They sell him into slavery, uh, headed down to Egypt. Never to think they would see him again. Egypt's a faraway place from Canaan. So we'll send him off to slavery. We rid ourselves of him. We'll go tell our dad that a a wild animal has killed him. And we'll never have to worry about that again. Well, of course, Joseph then, that's detour number one. Detour number two is he finds himself in Potiphar's house, a slave. He is elevated to the second in command. Everything's going well until his wife accuses rape upon Joseph, a crime that he did not commit. Detour number two takes place. He is thrown into prison. And then detour number three, where we see that he spends over a decade in prison waiting for God to rescue him. And because Pharaoh has dreams, and because Joseph has proven his ability to interpret dreams to different prisoners in the jail, one of the prisoners, the cupbearer, is restored to Pharaoh's court, and that cupbearer remembers that Pharaoh, or, I'm sorry, that Joseph has the ability to interpret deems, tells Pharaoh that. Pharaoh brings Joseph out of prison. Joseph interprets the dream of Pharaoh, and there's a famine that's going to come. That's what the dream says. Seven years of good are going to take place in the land of Egypt, and then after seven years of good, there will be seven years of extreme famine. And so Egypt's got a decision to make. Are they going to prepare themselves and be ready for the seven years of famine by keeping 20% of the seven good years uh, for themselves and hold it as a way to take care of the lean years? Joseph is elevated once again, detour number three or four now, where he's elevated to be the prime minister over that whole process and the second in command over all of Egypt. Now, we've seen God's good. God's good detours in Joseph's life. But I want to remind you, God is not the God simply of Joseph or in the area code where Joseph lives. God is the God of all of his creation. And while God is doing works in Joseph's life through the detours that he brings, I want you to recognize that Genesis 42 turns the story back to Canaan. We've been following, if you will, the spotlight of this story has been following the character of Joseph up to this point. But now the spotlight moves off of Joseph in Egypt back to Canaan and back to Jacob, Joseph's dad, and his brothers. And we're going to see that just as God was working in the life of Joseph, God was working as well in the life of Jacob and his sons. 
the brothers of Joseph who had done such wrong. And God is working in their spirit. They don't even know it yet. For 20 years, they've experienced a life without Joseph. And I wonder at times, every time Joseph's birthday came up, every time they commemorated the death of Joseph, if their consciences didn't get stirred a little bit. And these hardened men who had done evil treachery, against their brother. I wonder if there was conversations taking place. I wonder if there were some sleepless nights as a result of the guilt that they felt over the sin that they had committed against their brother. And I wonder if at some point they were wondering, can they keep this secret for much longer? Well, today we are going to learn how God awakens our conscience. We're going to see how God moves us to repentance through the example of Joseph's brothers, and how God, little by little, through step by step, through test after test, God moves them to a place where they repent of their sins and confess it before God and others. So that's where we want to go this morning. I'm going to ask for God's blessing on our time. But before I do, let's uh, set the tone and tenor of where we're going. Let's understand where we are so far. Turn to Genesis 41 for a moment, the very end of 41. Here's where we're at. Verse 53. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt had come to an end. And the seven years of famine began. As Joseph had said, there was a famine in all the lands. But in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says you do, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was severe all over the earth. Let's pray. Father God, we're going to learn this morning how you move to melt hearts. And Lord, some it will be a reminder of how you moved in our hearts to bring us to salvation. For others, it will be a rebuke uh, to our lives in the present, where we are suppressing sin, where we are hiding behind our sin, where, where we long to keep our sin secret. And by your Spirit, and by your um, hand, Lord, you are moving us closer and closer to repentance. Lord, I pray that you would challenge our hearts this morning, that we would see a picture, an object lesson, of your grace and your mercy, moving us to a place of confession and repentance. Move us in that way, Lord, and let us recognize your hand as the brothers did, so that we might receive life, that we might receive forgiveness, that we might receive right standing with the God whom we've offended. We love you and thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ who takes away our guilt and our shame and puts us in that right standing with you. We love you and... Love you for the gift that you've given. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We've been talking about detours. And we've talked about how detours can bring about frustration and uh, consternation in our lives. But detours um, in and of themselves can be incredibly helpful. They can show us maybe a new way of traveling from point A to point B. But defined in the dictionary, uh, detours are, are things that don't take us on the shortest usual route. They're different. Sometimes great difficulty can be had as a result of taking a detour. But detours can change lives. 
There are moments and times in my life where God has caused me to do an about-face as a result of the direction I was heading in to send me in a completely different direction. I remember that with the death of my brother. I remember that uh, with regards to uh, Amanda's cancer diagnosis. Things in my life that were uh, so that caused me to look at life so differently than I did the day before. You see, detours can help us. They can make the needed changes in our life. One of the greatest theological lessons that uh, we've been taught, uh, we were taught by a guy named Lightning McQueen. You remember Lightning McQueen from the movie Cars? Let me help you out. Lightning McQueen was a self-centered, arrogant race car. He had everything going for him. He was winning trophies, and, and he had learned that he didn't need anybody else but himself. And so he walked over people. He didn't care about people's feelings. Until one day he was heading down the interstate to another race, and a detour took place. Instead of being on the interstate, he found himself on Route 66 in a city called Radiator Springs. And through the course of the very theological movie, by the way, okay, and through the course of events, he would learn a valuable lesson. The detour into Radiator Springs would show him that his life as he knew it needed to change. He'd be convicted of his arrogance, convicted of his self-centeredness. And as a result of some help from his new friends, he would learn that he wasn't as great as he once thought he was. That some of the sins of his past were being conjured up, and he would learn that life would be very different as a result. All of us have experienced, at one time or another, detours in our life that cause us to reevaluate who we are, to reevaluate where we're going. And for some of us who have experienced salvation in Jesus Christ, the Bible makes it clear that we all, like sheep, have gone astray, each our own way. And the Bible says that God in His goodness, God in His mercy, has put us on a detour, has shown us our sin, and He has moved us to a place where we will repent of our sin and trust Christ as our Savior. Genesis 42 is a picture of that. It's a picture of how God melts hearts and brings them to repentance. This morning, we're going to see that process. We're going to see the divine detour before us. I want you to notice, first of all, that the divine detour involves life's troubles to convict us of sin. It involves life's troubles to convict us of sin. Now, notice in the text, uh, we move back from Egypt to the land of Canaan. When Jacob learned, verse 1, that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I've heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So the ten, brother of, ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But he did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brothers, with him, for he feared that harm may happen to him. So let's stop there. As I said in the introduction, the spotlight has moved back to Canaan, miles away from Egypt. And we find the brothers and Jacob, Joseph's dad, living life without Joseph. And they've gone on, but we recognize and know that some of the fears and some of the concerns that Jacob had were still alive and well from years ago. Some 17, 18, maybe even 20 years have now passed. And Jacob is still scared that if I send Benjamin with the brothers, something bad may happen. And so that is still raw in Jacob's life, the loss of Joseph. But God is moving in the lives of Joseph's brothers. 
God is not content to leave Joseph's brothers in their sin. And he wants to conjure up in their spirit and their conscience that what they've done to Joseph needs to be confessed, it needs to have sorrow for the sin that it has been committed, and a repentance that they would never do those things again. Well, how is he going to bring this about? Notice that the same way that Joseph's brothers are brought to conviction is many times the way God brings us to conviction of our sin. Number one, we see it in the problems we face. The problems we face. What's the problem in Joseph's brother's life? It's a problem that a lot of people were facing at the time. Famine. At the end of chapter 41, we see a famine has broke out. Now, we knew it was coming. We knew it was coming because we have been reading what Joseph has articulated to Pharaoh. We know it's coming because Pharaoh has, has articulated to us that he had a dream, and that dream has been interpreted that there would be seven years of good, uh, ag times, if you will, and seven years of great famine. We know the seven years have taken place of good. Joseph has done his job. He has filled the storehouses with all the food and the grain and water that would be needed to be able to live in the seven years of famine. But that, that taking care of all in Egypt hadn't gotten to Canaan. And Joseph and his, sorry, Jacob and Joseph's brothers recognized that if they didn't do something, they would be dead. And so there's this problem. There's this problem that they can't get beyond. And it's the problem of the famine. Now you say, well, how bad could a famine really be? Let's put ourselves in their shoes. In an ancient agrarian society, a famine meant an arduous and slow death. You would watch the cupboards and the shelves of the pantry become less and less. And you had no idea if tomorrow rain would come. And even if rain did come, it would be a whole other season before a, a, a harvest of food would be available. And so they're sitting there and they're watching, dying the slow, grueling death. And they don't have any solution. They don't know what they're going to do. Listen, they couldn't go to Jewel or Aldi and pick up food. You know, we don't know what a famine is today because our food comes from all over the world, right? I always love to look at the bananas that I buy. On the stickers, you'll see where it comes from, Ecuador and Bolivia and all those places. You're like, how in the world do they get it from Bolivia and Ecuador quick enough to us before they're gone? And the funny thing is they only last a day and a half on my on my counter, but they made it up to this point so so beautifully, right? So I don't know how they do it, but they get it there. But in the famine, within a very small radius of space would determine whether you would live or die. And so they've got this problem. And God uses problems all the time to bring people to their knees. God uses problems because, listen, prosperity and success are bad um, pokers of your, if you will, of your conscience. They don't move us to change. Usually when things are going well, you don't change things, right? But when things are terrible you're going to start making some changes. And that's what we see in the life of Joseph's brothers. A problem's come, and now we've got to think about things we've never thought about before. But herein lies the problem. The problem was so big that they were paralyzed in their ability to fix it. There was a paralysis. There's famine going on. 
And Jacob, the patriarch of the family, now aged at this point, looks at his able-bodied young sons, all ten of them, and says, listen, why are you looking at one another? Let's get to work. We know that there's crops in Egypt. We know that there's sustenance in Egypt. Let's take some money. Let's take what we have in excess, and let's go down to Egypt and get the food that we need. Why do you find yourself just sitting there? The problem was famine had paralyzed them into thinking that they were their life was done. They didn't know what to do. And there are times in our lives where the problems are so big that we're paralyzed in knowing what to do. Let me just be very open and honest with you. When, when Amanda's cancer diagnosis took place, I was paralyzed with fear. I'm 40 years of age, and my wife is uh, the same age, and she's got cancer. And we didn't know how bad it was, and we didn't know what it was going to determine. I, I just remember over and over in my mind, what's going to happen when they say it's terminal? What are they going to say when it's in the bone? They had diagnosed Amanda with a rare form of breast cancer that almost always would be diagnosed later on at a, at a later time into bone cancer. And then you know what you do? You go to WebMD, right? Because that's helpful, Right? And so then I see, and, and I'm paralyzed with this fear. And what am I going to do? And, and God, why would you want me to be a widow, or a widower? And God, why, what am I going to do with my kids? And what am I going to tell them? What am I going to tell a, a sick wife? And, and what if, what if, what if? And paralyzed with fear. But let's be reminded that God says He doesn't give us a spirit of fear, right? But I wasn't living there. And Joseph's brothers weren't living there. There was a problem too big for them to handle. And what it does is the, the answer points out their faults. Write that down. It points out their faults. The dad says, listen, I want you to go. And I wonder if it went like this. I want you to go to Egypt. What's that, dad? I want you to go to Egypt. That worked really well. I didn't think it would. Okay? Egypt. I wonder if the word Egypt echoed in their hearts. Egypt? Joseph is in Egypt. The last place we knew where Joseph was heading was Egypt. If you rewind back to when they sell their brother into slavery, it makes it very clear that the traitors are taking him to Egypt. That's the last place they want to go. Why? Commentators believe that the reason why is they're scared to death they'll see Joseph. And what will they do when they see the fraction of the man that they once knew? Now over 30 years of age, some 20 years in slavery. They didn't know that Joseph would be elevated into Potiphar's house. They didn't know that Joseph would interpret dreams and be put into the uh, house of Pharaoh. They think Joseph, they're going to run into Joseph on the side of a street, broken down, emaciated, and their eyes are going to connect with his. And, and what am I going to do when I see Joseph? You know, if you want to have an idea, a small idea or fraction of what that feels like, have you ever wronged an individual and know you've got to go see an individual? Maybe it's at church and, or, or it's at a family gathering, and you know you've wronged someone. And the sick feeling you have of what am I going to do when my eyes connect with theirs? What am I going to say to them when I have to say hello? They have the sick, uneasy feeling of what are we going to do if we see Joseph. And the thoughts go back 20 years 
to the great sin. Egypt was the alarm, if you will, that broke the men, Joseph's brothers, out of their slumber. Now, they're not fully awake. But it's that first moment where your phone or your alarm clock goes off and, and you, you hear it. You don't want to acknowledge it. And your hand slowly, kind of in its slumber, turns off the alarm. And you're half awake, half asleep. That's what Egypt was doing for, jo- for Joseph's brothers. You see, God had a way of waking up the heart. I wonder if Joseph's brothers went to bed that night. And I remember reading the the book, The Telltale Heart, by Edgar Allan Poe. Do you remember uh, the killer in the story goes to bed and he hears the heartbeat of his victim? It's driving him crazy. And we're told by the author that it's not the heartbeat of the victim, but it's his own beating heart and guilty conscience that's keeping him up at night. I wonder if the conscience of those guys, Egypt, what is going to happen when we see him. They must have been driving them crazy. So they go and they head to Egypt. They do what their father says. They don't have much of an option, right? They're going to either die or they're going to face their fears and head to Egypt. Notice verse 6 through 17. We see that God can sometimes teach us great things about our sin by putting us in the footsteps of others. And so notice, starting in verse 6, they head into Egypt. And the text tells us, and uh, now Joseph was the governor over the land uh, of uh, over all the land, he was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Hint, hint. Let's rewind. Joseph had dreams, right? Stalks of grain bowing down to his stalk of grain. God is faithful. God is bringing his his dream to fruition. And Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where did you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Let's just stop there for a second. How in the world could they have not recognized their brother? Right? That's the question. We've got to answer that question. Here's a couple things. 17-year-olds, you will not look how you look when you're 35. Okay? So if you think you're going to be that good looking, listen, I was a good-looking 17-year-old, and uh, it's not the case these days. Okay? Number one. Number two, the look changes, uh, especially with what Joseph had experienced as the man in Egypt, would be totally different. I can't tell you how many people have come into my home and seen the picture of Amanda and my wedding. Jet black hair, I mean, flowing beautifully, okay? 17 years can take a lot of acreage away from your hairdo, right? There's belief that, as we've seen over and over again in movies like the Ten Commandments and that, history tells us that most men that were were a part of royalty in Egypt were bald, because it's just beautiful, right? Okay? Amen. That's right. Someone's going to heaven. Amen. Okay? They were bald. They probably wore heavy amounts of makeup, what we've come to learn. Uh, Some sort of mascara that would accent the eyes, things that would accent uh, who they are. Um, In Canaan, we will learn later on in the story that they were hairy, bearded men. And that set them apart over all of Egypt. It was a different culture in time. And here's the final thing. 
that would keep them from understanding his appearance. They thought they would find Joseph in some gutter somewhere, not standing before them in a throne room, right? And so there's good reason to understand why they did not uh, notice him. So let's go on. And uh, uh, let's see here, where did we finish up here? Joseph, remember the dreams that he had dreamed of them? Your spies, he says. Um, no, he goes on, he says, uh, No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. And then they say, we are honest men. Okay? Baloney, you're honest men. I'd love to hear what you told my dad when you got home from the, from the great sin of throwing me into pit and then selling me into slavery. He said, no, it's the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we are servants, our brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, one truth. And, the, and one is no more. Lie. Wait a minute, we're honest men. They just told the guy, our, our other brother's dead. Well, Joseph knows that not to be true with 100% accuracy, right? You're lying to me. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother back while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. Or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in the custody for three days. Joseph does, you you can determine one of two things about Joseph. Joseph is a vengeful, angry, bitter man who says, I am going to get a pound of flesh out of my brothers, which the text seems to say nothing about. Because a bitter, vengeful man who seeks to get a pound of flesh doesn't treat them generously as Joseph does later in the story. So what is Joseph doing? Joseph is wanting to give his brothers an appetizer of some of the pain and sorrow that they had caused him to experience. Let me illustrate. Some years ago, Noah was about five or six years of age, and every time we would go out to a store, Noah would wander. Noah, stay here. Stay with me. Noah would go and wander. And I knew I needed to teach my son a lesson because he would not listen to me. So one day we're in the store. And Noah starts wandering off. Noah, come back here. No, Dad, I'm going to do my own thing. He wanders off. I said, you know what? I'm going to let him wander. And so little by little, he gets farther and farther away from me. Little does he know I'm following him, but yet incognito, okay? And I'm watching him roam about. And he is now on the other side of the store, just doing everything. And I want you to know, a six-year-old kid is full of bliss. This is great. I'm my own man, doing my own shopping, loving this. And this went on for 15 or 20 minutes. And then at some point, I don't know what happened in his little mind. He looked around and his freedom turned to fear. And he starts looking around and I could notice there was a pace pickup in his, in his walking. No, mom and dad aren't there. And he started, you know, he's starting to run over here and he's looking down the aisle. I don't see mom and dad over there. And by the way, I wonder what the security cameras are seeing of me because I'm ducking out of the way and all of that. And then something happens. Noah stops in the middle of the aisle. His head drops and he starts to cry. I'm lost. 
I don't know where mom and dad are at. This isn't fun anymore. Someone help me. And I let him sit there. I'm a bad dad. I know you guys. Okay. His head drops and he starts to cry. And my first thought is go, go let him off the hook. And I let him there for about a minute or so cry. I'm scared. I'm lost. And I came out and I said, son, where have you been? And he starts confessing, I, I wanted to go see the toys, and I know mom and you didn't want me to go see the toys, but I wanted to do it. And where did you guys go? I said, we were right where we were at. You left us. But I want you to know, I was watching you the entire time. No, you weren't. You, you didn't know where I went. Yes, I did. We went here, and I told him all the places he went. And I said, son, this is why. Can I tell you something? Noah didn't wander ever again. He didn't wander because he tasted for a moment what it could have been like. And Joseph is going to give these guys a little appetizer as to what he experienced. I want you to know, F.B. Meyer does a great job in his commentary of of, uh, Joseph's life. And he chronicles this. He says, notice, first of all, he calls them spies when they come into Egypt. F.B. Meyer says that that's why the brothers are so angry with him in the first place, right? Joseph goes to check in on them. If you remember back at the beginning of Genesis 37, Joseph at an earlier time had given a bad report about his brothers to their dad. So when he's coming into Dothan, remember when his dad says, go check on your brothers? They're like, listen, here comes the spy checking in on us so they can give a bad report to our dad. we got to do something about him. That's similarity number one. Number two, they treated him harshly. And Joseph does as well. They rough him up. Number three, we see that they put him into a pit, and he does as well. F.B. Meyer goes as far as to say that he believes that the three days that Joseph, I'm sorry, that the brothers were in custody is symbolic of the three days that F.B. Meyer believes that Joseph was in the pit. Okay? So that they're saying, Joseph, when he was thrown into the pit waiting for traitors to come, was a duration of three days. And so we see the similarity over and over again. The parallel between their treatment of Joseph and Joseph's treatment of them was a powerful stimulant to awaken their guilty conscience. Now for 20-some years, they have put this conscience to bed. They've quieted it. The Bible says they've seared their conscience. But when we get put into a place where we experience some of the same treatment that we once fed to others or did to others, it will conjure up all types of feelings we never thought we would have. Can I tell you, as I've watched my boys at different times in their um, school times and their engagement with friends and even enemies, if you will, I have been brought to places of great conviction on how I treated my boyhood pals and friends and enemies. When my children have come back, and especially, I just will be very honest with you, when when Luke has come as the youngest, brokenhearted that his older brothers were harsh with him, I've been struck by how did my brother Joel feel when Chris and I were harsh with him. You see, when we see or we are placed in in places of harsh treatment, we begin to remember 
how we treated others, how we hurt others. And for a little bit, they taste some of the mistreatment. And, and no doubt, their mind is going back to, and we'll see that this is exactly what they're thinking, how could we have treated our brother this way? This is terrible. And might I add, they're experiencing just a little bit of it. And it's breaking their heart. So he puts us in the footsteps of others. And sometimes we are convicted of our sin when we are placed in a place of mistreatment. So notice, what does God do then? Does all of a sudden, Joseph say, hey guys, it's me. I'm Joseph. And you guys have been very bad. No, just as Joseph does, we see that God uses time, time to soften hearts. To soften hearts. The Apostle Peter in the New Testament tells the church the following in 1 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any of you should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God allows time so that we might come to our senses of our sin and see the need for us to repent. And the, and the grinding tool, if you will, of God's mill grinds slowly. And for some of us, it's taken years for us to see our need for salvation. For some of us, it has been years for us to see the wrong that we've done in people's lives. For Joseph's brothers, those gears of God's grinding mill have taken 20 years to awaken the conscience. Twenty years they would watch their father weep over their brother. Twenty birthdays would go by where they would celebrate and commemorate the life of Joseph. And I wonder when they would talk about Joseph around the table, if the eyes of the brothers darted amongst one another, wondering, is someone going to break? Is someone going to announce finally that the, the, uh, the guilt is too much to bear? I wonder how many threats amongst the brothers took place. Don't you dare ever tell our dad. Don't break. Keep the secret. Twenty years. But what would that twenty years cause? Well, we know what three days did. Notice there are things that God's time allows us to do. Number one, it causes us to think. To think. Verse 17. Verse 17 in our text tells us what's going on. He put them all together in custody for three days. Three days in prison gives you time to think. I remember one time I got in trouble with the law, and I called my dad. I said, Dad, I've been arrested. I was a teenager. And my dad said, Who is this? I said, Dad, it's your son. And he says, How many phone calls do they let you have? I said, One. He said, you wasted it on the wrong guy and hung up. Okay? For, I think it was 18 hours, I sat in a cell to think. My mom threatened divorce to my dad if she didn't come and pick me up finally. God bless her. And he came, but that's some time to think. And in that cell, those brothers had time to think. We've been accused of a crime we didn't commit. Hint, hint. We were treated harshly even though we were innocent. Hint, hint. Now we've been thrown into a pit. 
screaming for our lives. Listen, I wonder if when they were grabbed, if they didn't utter the same words that Joseph did. Wait, what are you guys doing? We're innocents. We've done nothing wrong. Don't throw us into prison. Let us go home. Those words must have echoed from Joseph's own mouth, right? And they began to think. I remember growing up when I would do wrong. My parents would tell me to go to my room and think about it, right? Think about it. Think about what you've done. God does that as well, doesn't He? Puts problems and trials in our lives. And we start thinking, why is this happening? Why has this bad luck? Why has this uh, bad consequence come in my life? Is it because of something I've done? Have I offended God? Have I angered God? We start to think. Notice, thinking will always lead to talking. To talking. In, In verse 21 through 24, their thinking moves to talking. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. This is why the distress has come upon us. And then Reuben answers, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Why are we here? Answer, we're here because God is paying us back for the sin against Joseph. We're guilty of His blood. And they begin to talk and confess. And here's the crazy thing. They're confessing sins of 20 years ago. You think it was in their heart and mind? You betcha. That guilty conscience has been been sitting there and they've tried to suppress it, tried to suppress it. And now the prodding of all that Joseph has done, all of these visual pictures, has this issue coming up as if it's like like, uh, indigestion. Heartburn, just burning within them. No way to suppress it. And they start talking. Truly, surely, this is why we're dealing with this. We have not dealt with this sin, and now it's coming back to haunt us. You see, that's what God does in our lives. He causes by the conviction of His Spirit for us to think, why am I doing this? Why am I going away from God and His Word? And then we start talking, and surely these issues, surely these things in my life are as a result of my sin. And notice what it does later in the text. It causes us to tremble. Verses 25 through 28. In fact, just start in verse 26. Then they loaded their donkeys, that is Joseph, loaded the brothers' donkeys with their grain so that they could depart. He releases them. And one of them opened their sack to give the donkey fodder at a lodging place. So they're somewhere between Egypt and Canaan. And they go to feed the donkeys. And the money that they had taken to pay Joseph for the food is found in the money sack. And he says to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? For the first time, they speak of God. God is at work. God is doing all of this. 
God has brought forth this famine. God has brought us before the prime minister of Egypt. God has caused this prime minister to treat us in a harsh way, thinking we are uh, things that we aren't. God has used the prime minister to uh, confine us and put us into custody. God has now caused one of our brothers to have to be left in Egypt. Remember earlier in the text, they take Simeon and they bind him up before the brothers. Listen to me. This is a powerful thing. This is going to be the second time in their life they're going to go home to dad one brother short. For the second time in their life, they're going to have to go and say, Hey, Dad, Simeon's still in Egypt. Were they going to lie about it? Or were they going to tell the truth? We learn that they tell the truth. But they're seeing this pattern over and over again. And on their way back, they say, God is at work. Listen, you will never be brought to repentance unless you see the hand of God moving in your life. And some of us have experienced that. If you're a child of God, at some point, you said, God is at work. And I want you to recognize God is this hound dog on them right now, right? God is sniffing them out. Everywhere they try to run away from this, God is there. And they say, God is doing something. He's changing us. We should have been put to death. But now we've got this money in our pocket. What are we to do? I want you to notice that at this point, the brothers should not be filled with fear and dread. But they know exactly what they need to do. And I want you to notice the final thing is that the divine detour involves, it involves gracious treatment to show us the way to repentance. When I get to the part of the sermon, I'm struck with this idea that Joseph could have done whatever he wanted to them. Why doesn't he just kill them? Right? Humanly speaking, I would have said, hey, stop talking in Egyptian and say, hey, in Hebrew, I'm Joseph, your brother, and you wronged the wrong dude. Kill him. If I wanted some sport, then I would have said in Hebrew, listen, I'm your brother Joseph. And now it's time to pay the piper. Take them off into slavery. And then when you're done using them as slaves, put them in prison for a while. Make them feel what I felt. But Joseph doesn't do that, does he? Joseph lets them taste a little bit of what they experience. I want you to recognize later in the story, they're going to see Simeon. They come back to Egypt. I want to give too much of the story because I want to sit where we're at. But later in the story, they're going to come back with Benjamin, okay? And they're going to see Simeon. And they're going to see that Simeon was treated well and well fed. I want you to recognize, listen, these hardened criminals that, remember, they killed an entire city of men and took their wives and children as, as trophies, if you will, of warfare. This, this group of guys that was willing to kill their own flesh and blood. Three days in an Egyptian prison and they're confessing everything. Three days, not years, three days. Nobody can stand under the microscope of God and live to tell of it, right? Three days and they're confessing. And what do we see Joseph do? He gives them a little taste. He sends them on their way. And I want you to recognize he gives them more than what they deserve. Number one, he gives them food. 
He packs their donkeys and fills them. Here's all the food that you need. So he gives them what they don't deserve. They don't deserve food. But he gives it to them. He gives it to them free of cost. He puts the money. They'll learn when they get back home that all of the money that they had come to Egypt with to buy food is back in the sacks of of their uh, grain. He's given it back. They deserve death, and he gives them food so they can live. He gives them the exact opposite of what they deserve. And, and that paints a picture for me this morning of what my God does for me. I'm a sinner, hostile towards God, rebellious against God, insolent, a hater of God. I shake my fist at God in my sin. And God could say, you know what, enough's enough, Badal, you're a dead man. And consign me to hell in everlasting torment and punishment. But is that what God does? No, my friends. For God so loved the world that He gave. That He gave. And what did He give? Not just food. Not just my money back. But He gave His one and only Son. I deserved hell and God gave me heaven. And let me tell you something. I'm not the only one in this place. But every one of us. You and I deserve hell. Hell. And God gave us heaven. He gave us what we did not deserve. It should be of no, it should be of great consequence to us that when we wake up every morning and experience the sunshine as God's people, that we remember that it is God who gives the sun to the righteous and unrighteous. That God gives rain to the righteous and unrighteous. That God gives joy and love and peace and tranquility to the righteous and unrighteous, right? He gives us all these years to live and enjoy His creation and enjoy relationships with one another to the righteous and the unrighteous. He gives sinners what we do not deserve. He gives us life instead of death. Number two, we see that this gracious treatment involves setting us on the course of confession. Notice verse 28, they notice that God is at work. They know that He's moving in such a way to bring them to a certain point. What point? Confession. God's doing this. God knows our sin. And so what do we need to do? We need to tell of our sin. And they do in verse 22. Notice what they say in verse 21. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. Some of you in this place right now are fighting against the Spirit of God and you're wondering why God is against you. You're wondering why everything has a door to it instead of a pathway. Because God has put Himself between you and your future. And God is saying you need to confess of your sin so that I might become faithful and just to forgive you. You see, they were unwilling to do so. But how does God do that? How does God bring us to a place of confession? I want to remind you that God does not do it by condemning us. For God did not send His Son to condemn the world, but to save it. And then I was struck by the old hymn, that reminds us of this truth. John Newton, the sinner of sinners, when he wrote the, penned the words of amazing grace, said the following, "'Twas grace that taught my heart, help me out, to fear." That doesn't make any sense. You ever, you ever question the words that you sing? Or do we just sing them? 
"'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." God's grace teaches me to fear. You betcha. Because as a sinner, we know our consciences tell us we're guilty and the God of the universe lavishes His love upon us, pours out His grace on us. And we sit there and shake our head. How can a holy God who says, who can't look at sin, show such grace and such mercy? I can't live with it. It's killing me. How can God be so gracious when I'm so sinful? But then I'm reminded of Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you presume upon the riches and kindness and forbearance and patience of God, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God has given us His Son, Jesus Christ. And, and we have in our spirit, in our conscience, burning within us that God would bankrupt heaven for sinners like you and me. And we ask the question, how then can I live such a life affront to a holy God? And the conscience is awakened. How can God be so gracious? How can God be so kind? Notice God's grace will lead us to life. Here's the kindness of Joseph. The guys are leaving, and they must have been incredibly shaken by what they experienced in, in Egypt. And yet Joseph has been so gracious to him, and, and I almost would miss this if it were not for God just revealing these, these things in my study. I want you to notice verse 18. It's an important verse there. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will help me out. Live. They don't have to be fearful for their lives. He goes on in verse 20, he says, So your words will be verified and you shall not die. Joseph has given him the roadmap. Listen, if you obey me, you will live and not die. So do what I say. Do what I say and all will go well with you. Recognize that God is moving in your life. He even says, for I fear God. So he's conjuring up, listen, God is at work. And how God is at work is he wants you to confess of your sins of the past and in the present, obey and do the will and word of God, right? And you will live. I'm awestruck that that's exactly what God commands of us. Confess your sins of the past. And in the present, commit yourself out of a spirit of repentance that I will do the will and work of my God in heaven who has saved me. Joseph, a picture of Christ, points to us and says, Listen, you want to live? You want abundance in life? Follow me and don't follow self. Because when you do, you will live and you will not die. The Bible tells us over and over again, Jesus' own words, you want to live and not die? You want to experience heaven, not hell? You want abundance and not despair? Then do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Do it and you will live. You see, Genesis 42 is a wonderful story of how reconciliation is beginning in the life of Joseph's brothers. How God is moving in their heart to get them to a right place. We don't know if they're going to say yes or no to it. We don't want to get too far into the story, right? You've got to come back next week. But it's a reminder that we've got a decision to make. Listen, let me close with this and you'll be done. God in His infinite love and mercy has allowed you and I to go our own way. 
to experience, like I did with Noah, to experience all the fun that comes with our human freedom, right? And we found ourselves lost. And at some point in our lives, we found ourselves broken. We found ourselves all messed up and our world turned upside down. And we didn't know what to do. And in that moment of despair, God could have given us everything that we deserved. But He didn't. He gave His Son, Jesus. And Jesus came, and He took care of the penalty, and He gave us what we needed right then and there, so that we could then confess of our sins. And then He says, listen, because you've confessed your sins of the past and repented of that, you will now no longer go that way, but you will do what I've called you to do. Now walk in this way. Not to the east or to the left, not to the left or to the right. Walk in this path. And when you do, you will experience my love. And when you do, you will experience my grace. And when you do, you will experience good and not harm. So the question this morning is not, will Joseph's brothers obey or not? The real question is, will you? Will you obey? God's working in your heart, and you've never confessed your sin to God. God is asking you the question today, today, will you confess your sin? And will you make a decision to follow me instead of your going your own way? If you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, today, the Bible says, is your day of salvation. And the question is, will you make that decision? Will you, will you determine yourself to do that? Or will you continue to live allowing the vice of God to get more and more tight, squeeze you more and more. God says grace is offered today. Will you believe? If you don't understand fully what that means or or want more clarity, we, we want to talk with you more about this. And so we want you to stop and talk with me. I had a person come up in the first service and say, I want to know more. This is all new to me. Help me understand this. And while that person still isn't quite ready, the vice is getting tighter and tighter. And she said, I'll be back. I'll be back. And I said, make that decision before it's too late. There may not be a tomorrow. And so I would pray, come and talk with me. Come and talk to the people at the Welcome Center. Come and talk to the person that's sitting next to you. Don't make uh, the decision to walk away from this, to think about it all the more. Because today God is speaking to you. I pray that people will come to the saving uh, place of, of Christ in their lives so they can experience the freedom from guilt and the sorrow and pain that they have brought upon others because of their sin. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and Lord, I pray for those that have never trusted you as their Savior and today they've heard again that they are sinners just like I am just like the rest of us are in this place, but never have trusted You as their Savior. Lord, I pray today would be a day that they would uh, give away their guilt and give away their shame and give away their sin and place it at the foot of the cross. Lord, You sent Jesus to die for us so that we might have life. And we've seen that played out in the life of Joseph and his brothers. And Lord, I pray that that same convicting work in Joseph's brother's lives would be experienced in the life of every person here. That we would confess sin. That we would experience Your forgiveness and Your mercy so that we might have new life in You. So Lord, if someone is struggling with that, Lord, that they would not leave this place until they've 
talk through it and come to a decision. Lord, for those that have trusted you as their Savior, Lord, I pray that this would remind us that we are to keep short lists with you. And Lord, if there's sin that is keeping us from a right relationship with our fellow man or from God, that we would confess our sin because we know you're faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So Lord, work in our hearts and minds, we ask, so that we might be able to get rid of our shame and our sorrow and our guilt stand in right stand, good stand, God of Thank you for being so kind and so merciful. And Lord, remind us that that is how we ought to treat others around us. We love you and give you the glory for all that you have done. For it has been so good for us. We love you. Thank you. In Christ's name we pray. All God's said.